Good afternoon and welcome back to the On Borrowed Time podcast. Today is Thursday, April 20th, 2023. Happy to have you here today. Uh, got an excellent guest installed for you today, uh, Mr. John McLaughlin, local businessman, entrepreneur, now author. John graduated and received his undergrad and MBA from UNCC. John also has uh, his teaching and marketing management certificates from Harvard Extension University. These days, John stays busy, still running his startup business, spending time with his lovely wife, Reba, and continuing his efforts with the volunteer circuit. Uh, John is a volunteer for the Life Education Services, and we'll get into that a little bit more during the podcast. Uh, and so to find more out about John and even find his book, you can look at it at uh, lifelinetoasoul.com. So you can also send us an email uh, to the On Borrowed Time podcast, Stephen at obtpodcast.com. Uh, and we'll have a link up to that on our website shortly. So with no further ado, welcome, Mr. John McClock, to the Home Bar Time Podcast. Stephen, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, and, uh, you know, you didn't think you were going to write the book, and uh, here you are. Here I am. Who, who would have guessed? Uh, you never know what direction life's going to take you, but you got to go with it, right? Uh, never, I wanted to teach, but I didn't necessarily want to teach inside a prison. But I uh, ended up there, and... Uh, was having a great time, learned a lot. It really changed my perspective on prisoners, the prison system, uh, the justice system. I was in a place that not many people get to see. Um, If you're in prison, you're usually in prison because you've been punished and you've got a prison sentence. But I got to see it from the inside and got a very objective view. I had no plans to write a book about it, but um, I lost the job eventually. I kind of felt like it was going to happen because here I am empowering people that the system is trying to keep down. And we are in opposite philosophical camps. You know, the friction's growing. I could feel it coming, kind of, that it was coming to an end. And sure enough, it did. And um, I told my dad's wife one evening, I said, you know, I don't have any more good prison stories for you. I'm sorry, because they loved, oh, tell me what happened. Tell me about this guy. A lot of colorful people that, you know, they look forward to it. And she said, well, I guess you'll just have to write a book about it. Yeah. um, So lots of good stories in the book. I read it, actually, you sent me the Audible, which I appreciate even more. I'm not a reader, but, you know, there's more books out there that I'm sure there are like yours. You know, it might just change me. But, you know, I really enjoyed the option of the Audible. So, I mean, I think it gives people like myself who just don't have the attention span to sit down or, or, or the time of day, you know, hop in the car, go down there. So, yeah. So thanks for the copy of the book. I want to go back, though, before you wrote the book and kind of talk about your life story. Um, again, you are... Uh, a successful business owner, uh, entrepreneur, and a lot of that I think you probably captured from your father. Uh, you're 100% right, yeah. And I'm not the type of person who would be an entrepreneur by choice. I'm more of a conservative person. Um, when I was getting out of college, I was thinking, let me go work for a big bank. Let me go somewhere where it's safe, where they've got you know plenty of financial resources. I can work my way up that corporate ladder, and I'll be safe there. Um, but my father has taken a different path. Well, he took a similar path, but it turned out different. Uh, he actually started right out of high school welding shop desk in a metal fabrication shop. And from that, he worked his way after up 25 years to become national sales manager for the same company, which is pretty unusual for some guy to come out of the factory and become national sales manager. Took took a lot of work. He worked really hard. He built this company up, blood, sweat, and tears. You know, he, he was not home much as a kid, um, well, what happened in the 80s, and it was happening a lot, was uh, people got into the company and they realized they had a very healthy pension fund, millions and millions of dollars. 
Well, they want to get their hands on it. So they got enough corporate raiders in there to basically dismantle the company. Uh, get the stock price as a publicly traded company, get the stock price down low enough where we can be the majority shareholders. We can do whatever we want with that pension fund. Right. You know, we can take those millions of dollars, put it in our pocket instead of the people who we've committed that to. And that was the plan. So he stood around and watched it for a few years and watched him take the company apart that he had built. And then one day, basically, they gave him a job that was so far beneath him, there was nothing for him to do, and he'd had enough. And he said, that's it. Gave, turned in his resignation, and he said, I'll never work for anybody again. I'll never put myself in that position where my fate is in their hands, and there's nothing I can do about it. So he traded in the Cadillac and the big fancy house, went to a rundown apartment and bought a minivan, started with nothing, you know, and just bootstrapped this company up. And he did it for a couple of years. And uh, I started working with him a little bit as I was going to school. And then one day he said, you know, when you get out of college, why don't you come work for me? He said, we're just getting started. I don't have a lot of money. I'll buy you a company car, though, and we'll have a good time together. Why don't you consider that? And I told him right then, I said, look, I'm, I'm going to do this because I know I can learn a lot from you. What you've done is pretty amazing. He was well regarded in the industry. We got the same name, and I was like, well, this is an obvious, perfect place for me to learn. Uh, I said, I'll do it for two years, but that's it. This is too risky. You know, this company goes out of business. I got nothing to show for it. You know, so I'm, two years, that's it. And that was in 1987. I still work for that company today, 2023, because what I learned is what he learned. You know, put your fate in your own hands is the way to do it. Even though it seems risky on the outside, you're in a position where you can pivot if you need to and you can make changes. And if you fail, you just pick yourself back up and start over. Yeah, you talk a lot, of, you talk a lot of in the book about the risk of entrepreneurship. And I think one of the key things about your audience where you were teaching, they don't have a lot of opportunities. And, and for some of those people because of their records, they can't go to get jobs. So what are they left with? They're left with one, likely not knowing anything about financial literacy as a whole, um, but they're, they have good ideas. And, and in, insert entrepreneurship, right? So you decided to write the book. Um, you know, the spirit of entrepreneurship is all over your face. And so you've been very successful, and I'm sure you just want to relay that message to others. I do. Um, what I learned through the prison, well, it made sense. When they hired me to teach in the prison, it made a lot of sense. And I did some research, and there's a lot of programs out there that teach entrepreneurship to incarcerated people. Because now you're coming out with a felony. You can't just walk down the street and get a job like maybe you could before you went in. But you can start your own company, and if you can find enough customers and bring value to them, they're not going to ask your past. They don't care. It would be rude for me to say, have you ever been to prison? You know, I'm not hiring you as an employee. I'm hiring you to wash my car or cut my yard or wash my windows or whatever it is. Um, whatever service business you can start with very little income because most of these guys don't have a lot of money to start with. But there's an avenue there that you can change your history. Uh, the other option is to go out and get a factory job, a, a minimum wage job, or maybe a little better with a felony on your record. Uh, get paid so little that in order for you to provide for your family, you're going to be very likely to get back into what got you into prison the first time. Right. That's what you know. Your families, your children are hungry. You don't have enough food. You don't have the money to buy it. Well, what's your other choice? Well, I know a way to make money. Here's what I did to get in the first time. I'll do it again. Now you get a longer prison sentence. And it becomes recidivism becomes part of the culture of that group, of that family. You know, I met a lot of guys in there who said, one guy told me, he said, you know, I used to see my dad in prison and, now I go, my son's in prison and I'm in prison. How about that? Isn't that something? And I told him, I said, yeah, that's great. Why don't you try to break the cycle? Well, why are you guys 
keep getting into this when you have options, but they don't see the options. They've, they've been beaten down by the system for so long. They've never been given any encouragement. They've never been given any instruction. They've never been given, given any guidance. They don't need much. I mean, there's some very entrepreneurial thinkers in there. You know, they ran businesses, many illegal, but they understand business. And there's some guys in there that can sell, you know. Um, so to, to make it, uh, to sum it up, it, it's a really good investment in a person. And, and if you're running a small business, you understand the importance of being, putting your resources to good use. These people don't need a lot of help or a lot of guidance, but you can change their history with just a little bit. So I like that part of it too, where you don't have to hold their hand. You just got to show them something that they haven't seen before. Yeah. You you talk about changing their history, but some of them, and and you brought up a a good story about yourself in the book. And, you know, I asked you a question in the, in the, in the pre-podcast questionnaire, you know, what would 18 year old or what would you now tell your 18 year old self? And you alluded to something that kind of struck me that was, you know, you're 18, live it up, but realize what you do at 18 still has consequences. And so a lot of those people probably don't know anything past maybe what they did when they were 18 years old. So they come out and they don't know how to operate in this world. So they're return offenders, right? Yeah. Yeah. The recidivism is, is a very strong number. You can look at the numbers at 60, 70%. It varies here and there. But if you give a guy one class and it doesn't even have to be a college class, You've reduced his chances of coming back by 15%. Just give him something. You know, give him a skill. Teach him how to weld. Teach him something that he can get value for. Well, now he's got a choice. Uh, if we don't do that, then there really isn't much of a choice. You know, we're giving, burning him with a felony. They're coming out with no money. They've got, you know, families to take care of or even just to take care of themselves. And, yeah, my 18-year-old self, if you read the book, uh, should have got himself in prison. Should have got himself in a lot of trouble. Right. I was doing really stupid things, which a lot of people do at that age. Um, I just got lucky. I didn't get caught. Um, and that's all I can say. If I had gotten caught with what I was doing, I would have certainly gone to prison. I would have done a prison sentence probably from 18 to maybe 22, 23 years old. I'd have come out. My dad would have never wanted me to work in his business. Uh, my choices would have been much different. I wouldn't have married the woman I married, wouldn't live in the house I live in. My history would have been very, very different. Uh, and it was just a matter of luck and me realizing There are big consequences for what I'm doing, and it's just not worth it. But you don't know that. You're invincible at 18 years old. Right. You know? Right. So before you were actually stepped foot into the prison on your first day, you, you know, you kind of, you struggled to find that job. You struggled to, you know, you had this passion for teaching. You just had nowhere to teach. So tell us about the, you know, application process of, and, and then the one day when you first walked in and you're like, I'm here. Yeah, great question. When I get something in my head, I was taught from an early age, if you want to do something, you just keep after it until you get it. You know, and I I had people show me that along the way. I'm not that determined of a person, but I had some really good guidance from my parents, from my friends. I wanted to quit my business two or three times, and people always talked me out of it. Something always came up. When things got bad, I was ready to run for it. But I had learned, if you want to, you just keep going for it. And the successful people in this world are the people basically that just don't quit until they get what they want. They're not the smartest people. They're the people that don't quit. So I got it in my head that I wanted to teach. And I sent out resumes, and I thought, well, this is, here's a guy that started a business from nothing, and he's got an MBA. This will be easy. You know, they're going to be fighting over me. And I got nothing, no response, zero. So I thought, well, maybe I'll go back and get some more education, got a teaching certificate. 
uh, I was going to get a doctorate. And I did, didn't pursue that because I went to an online university and then I realized this is not doctorate level stuff. I can get a doctorate, sure, a piece of paper, but no educator is going to buy it. Um, so I went to, I wanted to get some marketing credits. I took an online class at um, Harvard Extension University thinking that would impress people and still nothing, nothing, nothing. And um, I'm, you know, six years in now to this quest to be a teacher and I'm, Every Saturday, I'm just sitting down looking for, you know, job boards and entrepreneur teacher, marketing teacher, whatever we got. And I see this thing at the prison, and it looked like this is something I could do. This is uh, right up my alley. All they wanted was some business experience. Well, heck, I got an MBA. I got 20 years business experience. So I filled out the application, and as I was doing it, I was like, you know what? I saw them post this job six months ago because I was sure they'd interview me. Why would you not interview a guy who's got a, all these qualifications? So... In the box where you have to put your teaching philosophy, the first time I put all the stuff I thought they wanted to hear, you know, engage the learner, make the material relevant. And this time I wrote in all caps, there's absolutely no reason for you not to interview me for this job. If you do, I will run, you know, run this class the same way I ran my startup business to an industry leader. Yeah, I think that was the hook. I, that's a good portion of the book. I, I enjoyed that. You know, there's there's no reason. Wasn't it all caps or something like that? Yeah, like, I yeah, mean, absolutely. That sounds like something a marketing teacher would talk to you about. And uh, you know, I think in your book you talk about a, a teacher that made a very big impact on you. That you know, if I don't have your attention, right. you shouldn't. Even, I mean, it's not worth us being here. Right. Well, then my message is meaningless. And he was great. He's a guy. Uh, it was a marketing professor. Uh, Dr. Aravella still teaches at UNCC and he made me want to teach because I realized the way he did it worked. You know, I'm going to get your attention. I'm going to give you this message. And uh, some of the other teachers didn't have that. It was the first time I'd ever really been engaged as a student to the point of, I really look forward to going to class. I mean, he was that good. Um, so I figure, well, they're going to look at all this all cap rant on my part and quickly extinguish my possibilities. But a couple days later, the phone rang, and the lady said, hey, how'd you like to come interview for the prison job? So that were, there it was. After seven years, I finally had an offer, and uh, the, the interview took place at the prison. Now, I'd never been to a prison, and it was an eye-opening experience. And they showed me where I was going to be teaching. It was a dingy old day room with no resources, with a bunch of guys sleeping in the bunk room right next door. And I'm thinking. Yeah, I think you said that um, the interv during the interviews that you, you know, they ask you if you had any questions, or and then I think some of your questions were, well, is there any syllabus? Is there a previous history? And they showed you the Dave Ramsey book. <laughs> and that's all they left. That's so it. you were left to create almost 100 hours of curriculum time with no teaching experience whatsoever. Yeah, and not only that, no, I had a whiteboard and a marker and an eraser in the Dave Ramsey book for a 100-hour class. And I'm thinking, what am I going to do? I, there's no internet in prison. You know, I can't get on YouTube and show videos. I, there's no way to show a video. I can't show slides. I got to talk for a hundred hours to guys. They're going to be bored out of their minds. Um, and honestly, I think I was led down this path and I had to go through the seven year odyssey there so that I didn't turn that job down. Cause if, if it had come easy, I would have said, no, I'm going to hold out for something better. But I knew at that moment, this is it. I either take this teaching job or I don't become a teacher. Nobody else has asked me to teach. I can't say no. You know, at least I got my foot in the door somewhere. I'll just do this for a little while, and maybe that helps the resume, and maybe then I can get into someplace better. This is a stepping stone. That was what I thought. Um, but what I learned was this is where I'm supposed to be. You know, I can relate to these guys. Like I say, the trouble I got into or should have got into was the same trouble they did get into. Um, and I'm 
doing statistical research and I'm realizing that the criminal justice system is very unfair. I mean, I was lucky. I was white and middle class. When I screwed up as a kid, the police brought me to my parents' house and said, you better handle this kid. Right. If I'm black and I'm coming from a low-income neighborhood, they're not going to do that. They're going to put me in juvenile hall, and I'm going to start my career as an inmate. You know, And if you look at the statistics, it spells that out very clearly. Um, so I realized this is where I'm supposed to be, and I was supposed to go through this journey so that I would appreciate it. And I'm the right guy to teach these guys because I can relate. You know, The prison system is designed to dehumanize people. And it's there for a reason. I'm not saying it's wrong, but if I have to run a prison, I can't start treating you as a person. It's hard for me to be objective. I, I, I have to look at you as a, just a number, you know, and everybody gets treated the same. That's, that's why it works, because if I start doing favors for you, then he wants favors, and then we turn this into a completely out-of-control system. So you got to keep your, your, your boot on them. I mean, I understand that, but at the same time, to just make it all about punishment makes no sense because now we're not giving them the tools they need to do something different. And, yeah. and a lot of these guys just made one mistake. I mean, they shouldn't be caught up in this cycle of returning, returning, returning. Um, but there's not much for them to grasp onto to uh, get out of it. And that's the reason I named the book Lifeline. I was Somebody asked me, what's it like to teach in prison? And I said, well, it's a lot like throwing a lifeline to a drowning man. Yep. Problem is, he doesn't know he's drowning. He's just looking at me like, hey, I'm getting 27 days off my sentence for taking this class, and his mind is somewhere else. But that's every- all, you can't get past that. Like you can't. Right. That's, that's all he wants. And some, some of them, that's all they care about is just knock it off, not, knock those days off, right? Yep. I'm going to sit here, and I'm going to do nothing. But I'm going to get the rewards I get from taking a class, the favor that it curries me. Maybe it helps me get a work-release job. But that was the challenge. I didn't mind that because it's like, okay, I got you for 99 hours. And there's a chance that I can make you change the way you see your future. Maybe. Not everybody. Maybe 10%. Maybe three guys out of 10. That's a big win for me. One guy out of 10 is a big win. Because what you realize is if, if I can get him out of this cycle and he can go out and be productive, well, his family's going to be taken care of now. His children won't probably be caught up in that prison cycle mess that I saw so many times. Uh, so it was quite a quite a journey. Quite yeah. Yeah. You made a bunch of um, relationships in there. Um, you know, in fact, you have some folks that are actually working for you, right? And yep. and contribute and, you know, are productive people in society now. And it shows that if they get the training and they you give them the entrepreneurial spirit, hey, this is what can happen. Exactly right. I mean, that's living proof. Um, you know, I had a guy in there, really sharp, sharp, sharp man who made a bad mistake when he was 17 years old and got a five, six, I think seven year sentence out of a five year sentence. So he's nearing the end of his sentence. He's 20, 22, 23. And he just blew me away with how sharp he was. He reminded me of myself. The difference between me and him is I didn't get caught. We were the same age when we did what we did. He did things very similar to what I did. He just got caught and I didn't. Um, and he kept saying, I really want to come work for you. And I kept saying, no, nobody from here. I'm not promising anything down, to anybody. Right. Yeah. Well, when I started, I didn't want them to even know my name. Because I was afraid they would look me up on the way out and start asking for jobs, start asking for favors, start asking. That changed pretty quick when I realized these guys are just looking for some help. And uh, he asked enough that I was like, okay, if you want it that bad, let's try it. You know, I'll bring you in and we'll just do this for two weeks. Because I'm thinking maybe this guy goes off the, the reservation on me. I mean, I don't know. He's been in prison seven years. It's all he knows. 
Uh, he's turned my company into a, a very, very productive. He's done amazing work. Uh, great friend, you know, uh, reminds me very much of myself. He's got other entrepreneurial things on the side and, you know, that really made the whole experience worth doing. And then I've got some other guys that he knew from the prison that I didn't know that he brought in. Uh, one guy, he's leaving the company because he found something better, and that's even better, you know. But to give him a place to land on the way out and to give him just a little bit of guidance, it's amazing to watch him blossom and flourish. Yeah, they're like your children almost. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they're, exactly. Yeah, I mean, you've given someone spirit. You've given someone hope. Um you start each of the chapters out with a quote. Um, is there a favorite quote that you have in the book or favorite, you know, is it really just a favorite quote you have, I guess, in the book um, that kind of gives them entrepreneurial spirit? That's a great question. Uh, you know, and I didn't really plan on doing that. One day I was writing and I kind of couldn't think of anything to write. And I was like, I bet it'd be interesting to start each chapter with a quote. So, very first chapter, when I'm just getting into this teaching thing and I'm walking through a prison that I've never been in, there's a Richard Branson quote, and it says, when somebody offers you an amazing opportunity, say yes, then figure out how to do it later. I mean, there's an entrepreneur of world class, and basically that's the fake it till you make it, which if you're starting a business, you have to be the expert, even if you're not. You have to convince people that you're the expert. Uh, so... As I'm interviewing at this teaching position, I'm asking questions. Uh, do you have a success story? Is there a guy who took the class and he's just doing great, started his own company, and they're looking at me like, we don't know. I mean, we don't keep up with these guys. What do we care? Okay. Uh, do you have anything for me to work with, like you mentioned? No. There's no syllabus, no pass test, nothing. What objectives do you want me to get them to attain? It's pass-fail, and it's all about attendance. If they attend the class, they pass. So I'm thinking, okay, no more questions. Because they're starting to realize, I have no idea what I'm doing here with these questions. So it's time to just shut it off and go, oh, okay, got it. I'll take it from here. You don't, don't worry. But I had no idea what I was getting into, honestly. Um, but I knew it was time to just say, okay, I'm the expert here. I'll take care of this. Just turn me loose. And honestly, to not have any material really suited my style because I was used to doing things my way, running my own business. you know. And I wouldn't have liked it if they had given me things I had to accomplish that I didn't think were good for my students. So it was great. Um, what I learned teaching along the way was 99 hours is way too much time to teach entrepreneurship, way too much time. I, I had an extra at least 20 hours in there that I didn't know what to do with. But as I got to the financial literacy part the first time, I noticed that the day room started filling up with guys from the outside who wanted to learn about money. 60% uh, of people in prison are there for money reasons, be it, you know, robbery, selling drugs, whatever it was. But they have very little concept about what money is. If they get it, they just think they should spend it as fast as they can. They have no concept of, you know, basic personal finance. You know, I had to explain what's a debit card? How does that work? You know, how do you open a checking account? You know, basic, basic stuff. And, and they were fascinated. They wanted to know. I mean, obviously money was playing a big role in their life and they didn't know anything about it. And they just never have been taught. You know, even if you finished high school, there's not a lot of financial literacy in there. You've got to learn it on your own. So that was the eye-opener for me, too. And that was another thing. It was I got to do that, whereas if they had given me the syllabus and the curriculum, maybe not. They might have had me doing other things. So I was able to construct the classes I thought it would best serve the, the men there. And that's, that's suited my entrepreneurial personality perfectly. You talk in the book a lot about... Um well, I'm sorry. Let me, let me back up a little bit. You talk about the resources, and 
you probably came in there spending a little bit of your own pocket money on these resources. You brought in one book called Who Owns the Ice House? How did you find it? Just, okay, I got the job. I'm supposed to start the next week, and I'm kind of scrambling. What am I going to do? I mean, each class, my first class is three hours, or three hours, and I come back and do another hour and a half. My next day, I got to do three hours. What am I going to do? And I'm, I'm just Googling entrepreneurship in prison, entrepreneurship in prison. Well, here's a book, Who Owns the Ice House, that was written to teach entrepreneurship in prison. I couldn't ask for anything better than that. Um, it's a whole foundation, and it's a true story about a guy in Mississippi who decides he doesn't want to, in that day and time, this is way back in the 30s, well, the only job available is picking cotton. You know, and he decides he doesn't want to be a cotton picker. He wants to start a business, and he starts one, and it fails. He starts another one, and it fails. Then he buys the ice house, and you think, okay, this is a time when there was no electricity. Most people couldn't make ice, so ice was a big thing. If you got a bunch of field hands out in the field in Mississippi on a 98-degree day, well, you better have some cool water. They're not going to be working. So the ice played a big role in the community, and he was the only ice house within driving distance. So he learned entrepreneurship. Now, here comes his nephew, he had taken his son through this. This is what actually happened. Um, here comes his nephew who's sharp, gets great grades, and he takes him under his wing, and he says, I'm going to teach you entrepreneurship, and there's seven steps, choice, opportunity, branding, money management, on and on and on. And I was like, okay, that's perfect. That's my syllabus. We're going to read the book. Uh, there's eight chapters. We're going to read every chapter in order, and that's the material I'm going to present. It was beautiful. It was like a gift. Uh, here's the problem, though. When the book came, there's an old man, old black man wearing overalls, standing in a cotton field. Yep. On the cover. Yep. And I'm thinking, I can't bring this book in. Right. This is not going to resonate. Turn well. around at the door. Right. I mean, I'm dealing with guys in you know 2017 that are going to look at this as very racist, very stereotypical. And I hated it, but I didn't know what to do. At that point, I was committed. So I brought the books in, I handed them out, and I said, look, I bought these with my own money. They're yours to keep. I uh, want you to read them. We're going to go through each chapter. You don't have to turn them back in if you don't. And some guys took one look at that cover, put it down. I don't even think they ever picked it back up. Uh, and I had some guys say, I just can't read it. You know, it's too stereotypical. I just don't like it. The cotton fields and the, you yeah, know. Yeah, then you say that the first, so once they're invested, maybe they would, but, you know, but it's getting them into the second and third chapters. Didn't you say that the first part of the book was like the longest part? Yes. Like, you know, and your first assignment is one of your first assignments is to go read this part. So, and they couldn't even take it back to their bunks with them, right? So, the material that you presented, you had to bring in every single day a book bag for and with material, and you had to take it with you. They couldn't take anything back with them, right? Well, they weren't supposed to, but yeah, they did. But uh, there were a lot of the books got confiscated because they weren't supposed to have them supposedly, but. Um, what they were going? What were they going to do with paper? Like these are. I mean, was it a? I thought you said it was, a, was it a minimal security prison? Yeah, or was it? Yeah, minimal security. They and still, here they can't even take a book back to their cell with them. Not supposed to. And really, there was no cells. These guys were sleeping in just big open oh, rooms on right. bunk beds, you know. But if you left your book out, if it wasn't in your locker, they would take it. Okay, that means I had to buy another one. I kept buying these books, you know, right. used books. Yep. Um, but it was good because if I could get them in. They could relate because it was a, a guy who was just starting. It wasn't an educated man, but he said, save half your money. That's what I do. If I make $100, I put 50 in the bank. Okay, this is a guy you can listen to and you can learn from him. Don't spend more than you have, right? Save. you got to save, and then one day you'll have enough to get something. You know. And it was the principles, basic, basic principles, but it's exactly what they needed to hear. 
Uh, and if I could get them past the cover and into the first couple chapters, a couple guys grabbed hold of it. Uh, I had one book come back, and some guy had written on the inside, don't let the cover fool you. This is a good book. you know. And I just wish. I was thinking, gosh, if you're doing a teaching entrepreneurship in a prison, why would you put that on the cover? Uh, right. to, to me, you're just turned off your whole market instantly. Nobody wants to read, no matter what's inside, how good it is. So that was always my struggle. Yeah. Um, do you know if there's people who are doing that, teaching that? I mean, I I understand where you get the motivation from to do it. Did, well, there, are there other resources that are doing this outside of North Carolina, within the country? Kind of what gave you this idea? Or was it just, you know, a patentable idea? You said, hey, let's go. Let's go teach financial literacy and entrepreneurship to prisons. Is, is this happening elsewhere? It is. There's some big programs. Uh, there's one in Texas. It's called, I think, Prison Entrepreneurship, Pro- Entrepreneurship Program, where they bring in local businessmen as mentors. And they go through a big 12-week process where they kind of weed guys out. I think it's it's become pretty popular to say, okay, these guys maybe have the entrepreneurial mindset. Maybe that's what got them in trouble to start with. But they put it in the wrong direction. So we can take them and shape them and change them. And it, it does work. It does work. It's just such a good option for somebody who's coming out with a felony because they're going to be held back just about every job they look for that has any kind of potential. Yeah. And, you know, I think in your book, you, you talk about all kinds of good characters. And so as you were talking about them, I got to know them as the reader or the listener. Audible book. Thank you. Uh, I got to know them by name. And one of the things that struck me, John, was you felt you had a relationship with someone. You're probably 70 hours into the curriculum, and then they're gone. Right. And it's like when they're gone, they're gone, and you don't know why. And you have emotional time invested with that student, and they're just gone, whether it's a transfer, whether they got out, or whether they just said, Screw it. I, I don't want to come back, right? Um, and so that's got to be emotionally hard. Can you talk a little bit about that? Oh, absolutely. Um, it happened time and again. And the first time it happened, I had a, a pretty sharp guy in there, and he was doing really good. It was my first class. And we got in, like you said, about 70% in, and he wasn't there on a Thursday. And I thought, well, maybe he's sick or who? I don't know. Sometimes they would take guys and put them on the road crew, not usually students, but if they needed somebody, I, that had happened before. Then he didn't come in on the next day, the Friday. And so I said, what happened to Carl? Where is he? And nobody said a word. Everybody just instantly looked down at the floor. And I said, what happened to him? Is he still here? And they just wouldn't, nobody would say anything. And finally, some guy in the back said, uh, I think maybe he got moved to a different prison, but I have no idea why. I don't know what, what, what happened. Any infraction you did in minimum security would put you into a, a higher level. They were no room for trouble there. If Even if you, you were just associated with somebody, they would round them up and just move them out. And uh, one of my... Students came up to me after that, and he said, you can't ask questions like that in here. That's, that's like they're snitching on him. Everybody minds their own business in here. If somebody's not here, don't, don't ask somebody why. Uh, but it happened time and again where I'd lose a good student, and there was no explanation. He just wasn't there. Nobody would tell me what happened. Um, so it became part of the, the – you hoped to see everybody on Thursday, and you hoped they were still there Friday. But, you know, the, even guys that went through the class would just – I would just say, gosh, I haven't seen him in a couple of weeks. And sure enough, he had moved on to, you know, medium security or even, you know, high security from time to time. Um, basically, to get into this prison, you had to have a good two or three year completely clean record, no infractions. 
And even then you had to get lucky to get in there. And, and the guys wanted to be in that prison because you could get work release. Right. That was the big ticket. That's the holy grail of prison where you can leave the prison, go work in a factory or go work on a road crew and make money and keep the money. You know, you can bank it and get out with $20,000, $15,000. Yeah, That's your entrepreneurial startup right there. Right? Exactly. You can do a lot with it. Um, you certainly could start a business. Um, so they were on their best behavior. But if they got caught with tobacco or guys coming in from work release and they've been drinking or whatever it was they done, they were gone. I mean, there was no questions asked. You were going back to square one and maybe in two or three years you could work your way back up here again. But nobody would tell me what happened or why. You know, so it was just a matter of hoping to see everybody and sooner or later they all kind of trickled out and then one day i was gone too so it just kind of followed yeah i don't really i don't get i don't want to get to your exit quite yet because i think there's some good stories in the middle but talk about your relationship with the administration at the prison and i think that not only the administration just but it could be a guard that you walk by and you just knew how something you learned very early from your dad you talk about in the book is learning how to read people right right you're in sales you're an entrepreneur body language, right? Is this, should I be scared of this guy? Um, you know, is he going to give me grief? I mean, these are, these are things you're thinking of every day going to the prison that you had to go through multiple steps, never given credentials right. the whole time you were there That's to get right. into like, and you, you had to go above and beyond every time. But it's not, almost like they didn't want you there. Right. And I don't, maybe they did, maybe they didn't, maybe they just saw you as a part of what they were required to do. Uh, but talk about your relationship with the administration and then we'll get into the kind of the tail end of the, your, your time there after that. Okay. So I was there for almost three years and it started out, we were all friends. I mean, I got to know the guards names and they would check my bag and tell me what I couldn't and could bring in. And they would come through and count every once in a while. And we got to know each other. We were all buddy, buddy. But as I started realizing and aiming my class to give these guys skills. Uh, number one, what I knew from my own experience is I can give you all the business information in the world, but if I can't make you believe that you can do this, it doesn't matter. First thing I got to do is I got to build you up and say, this is something you can do. You can get out of here and do this. There's nothing going to stop you from doing this. Your, your past, you know, this is, if I can't convince you and give you the confidence to walk out the gate and say, you know what, I'm going to start my own business. Heck with it then it doesn't matter from that point forward. So I got to do that. I got to build confidence. And the way I do that is I shake your hand like regular guy, call you by your first name, show motivational videos. Well, here's a guy that got out. Look what he did. He's doing great. I'm building these guys up. Okay, now the friction's starting because they're realizing, wait a minute, this guy's not in here teaching them how to you know, mop floors. He's teaching them they can do something with their lives. Well, we got to keep them down because they start getting cocky. We're going to have problems. So, yeah, the friction grows and grows and grows over time. And – you know, you realize we're in complete philosophical opposite camps. I'm trying to build you up, and they're trying to tear you down. It was just a matter of time, you know. Um, and some weren't that way. Some were. but there was. And this is a minimal security. So, right. you know, multiply that by whatever you want to for maximum security. You're, you're at a, you know, so talking about trying to keep them down, these are people who may or who we're letting out and are likely about to get out one way or the other. And here they are still, uh, you know, pressing them down, right? Yep. Yep. I mean, you couldn't get in the class if you had more than two years to go. So you were getting out. I mean, it was just a matter of time. And I'm, you know, my philosophy is, well, this guy's going to go live somewhere. Do we want him living in our neighborhood starting a landscaping business or do we want him stealing radios out of cars? I mean, we can make the choice here. We can give him the tools to do something constructive. Now he's a taxpayer. 
or we can continue to give him nothing and watch what he's going to do when he gets out. And then the all the people in the administration say, see, I told you. That guy's no good. He's a loser. Look what he did. He came right back just like we thought he would. Um, so, And there were some guards I would say, hey, hey, you're giving these guys all this education for free. Now, how come I got to pay for my kids to go to college? And I'm like, what do you want me to do, man? I mean, are we just going to turn our back on? There's 2 million people incarcerated in the United States. Are we just going to turn our back on 2 million people and say, you guys are all lost causes? I mean, it, it makes no sense. But I understood where they were coming from, and I don't think they necessarily understood where I was coming from, but I try to keep my head low. And as long as I walked in and didn't have too much conversation with everybody, they kind of left me alone. There, there was a time, though, um, I started teaching, and I figured I'm going to get these guys' attention, just like my professor at UNCC. So I came out, and I said, okay, here's the statistics of being black and in prison. Here's the statistics of being white in prison. Uh, why is it so many more black people are in prison than white? Okay, here's the statistics for people from low income. And here's the statistics from people from high income. Why are so many more people from low income in prison? And here's the uh, statistics for people with an education. Less than 1% of people with a master's degree are in prison. If you've got education and you're white and you're educated, you know, and you come from a good financial background, prison is very unlikely in your future. However, if you come place of color, poverty, and no education, there's a very strong chance you're going to end up in prison. Well, I, I loved it because... I was spelling it out for these guys, and they weren't arguing with me. But um, I had a guard come in as I was giving this, and I always try to get it done quickly. There's cameras where I'm teaching, and if they wanted to, I'm sure they could hear everything I'm saying. They certainly could watch what I'm doing, and I know they got to hate this because I'm telling these guys, look, you're here maybe not for what you did but for who you, the situation you came from. You had a bad role model. You, know, you followed the, the drug dealer because he was the guy making all the money. You wanted to make all the money. I get that. You know, the system is rigged against you, and I tell them, unless you're white – rich and well-educated, don't break the law because they got a place for you here, and they'll, you'll keep coming back. Uh, certainly not what they wanted to hear. And I had a guard one time come in and say, look, I want you to print those slides and bring them to me tomorrow. And I said, oh, okay. Of course, I didn't, and he came looking for them, and I said, I don't think I'm going to do that. You know, I think you can get your own information, and if you don't agree with what I'm saying, well, let's talk about it. You Because know, the, the first time they told me that I couldn't say something, they wanted to censor me was my last day. I wasn't going to toe the line and be one of those these guys. There's absolutely no way. There's no point in that. I can't teach these guys to paint a bright future for themselves with their philosophy. So I was going to go for it at that point and say, well, we're probably going to come to a crossroads at some point, but until then, I'm doing it my way. You know. So fast forward kind of towards the end of your stint at the, at the prison. You walk in one day and somebody, I think, and you tell a story about it. I'll, I'll butcher it, but Basically, someone is like, hey, you hadn't heard? So-and-so isn't here anymore. Yeah. And then it's like, oh, somebody else is gone too. And yeah. so something happened. Right. Um, did you ever find out what happened, or did they just, like, uh, just like the prisoners, did Mr. Clean disappear? <laughs> a lot of people disappeared. And I heard a lot of different stories, um, but I think it was best. And it was funny how they told me they would, like you say, you don't tell on other people. So it was real quiet, under the cuff. This guy's not here anymore. This guy's not here anymore. She's not here anymore. They cleaned house, um, forced him into early retirement. Well, that, what the heck did they do? Well, it turned out they had a, their own little scam running, uh, right. and they got caught. And uh, I don't know exactly what they did, but it was certainly against the rules. And the state came in, seized all the computers, um, forced all the people out that were involved, and brought me very close to my 
end as a teacher, but uh, it was best said by one of my students who, after all this was happening, and believe me, when this happens in a prison, it's a big deal. Um, you know, they called us all into the, the chapel and tried to explain, now uh, we're going to need your compassion and help because we, we weren't expecting to lose all these people. And, you know, you could feel the, the momentum was swaying. All of a sudden the prisoners were like, hey, they, these guys are gone. All these stern disciplinary guys are right. gone. You know, we're kind of back in control now, it felt like. Um, but it turned out that this never made the paper. This was never reported. I don't think any of them got anything but fired. Over Shocker. It. Yeah, and one of the my one of my buddies came up to me and said, "Well, Mr. Moose, I'm Mr. Moose to them. Uh, that was my name there. Mr. Moose turns out they're crooks just like us. Yeah, and it's like, well, yeah, but they're not in prison and they're not. I going think that's to how prison. you started a chapter, Mr. Moose. Turns out they're they're, they're you know they're crooks just like us, and then right. they were. Yeah, um, I find a little irony that in things that people whenever I send out the, the pre podcast questionnaire, so crooked. Not necessarily cricket warden, but warden doing or whoever doing bad things. Right. It's I find a little irony that your favorite movie is Shawshank Redemption. Right. It's the perfect <laughs> <laughs> prison story. Yeah, I mean the because yeah. they're you know things start started getting better when that warden left. Right. You know, Andy Dufresne and, and Morgan Freeman met on a beach and everything was peachy keen. Right. Now you left the prison after that. You were just like you know. I think new people came in and it was just a good point, a good time for you to cut ties. Right. I yeah. mean, I think, I think the time came where you probably just were like, all right, this is, this is a good exit. Like, yeah, my wife is probably nudging me, um, you know, and I can still teach it, but this is a good time. Right. Talk yeah. about, talk about that decision. I'm sure it was hard. It was hard. I, you know, I was really enjoying helping and, and I had a good class. I had good momentum going, um, and I could see where I was starting to make a difference, and it, it was a great time. But at the same time, the friction's mounting. All of a sudden, these people are gone, and I really am putting probably too much time into it. My wife, who's always been 100% supportive, says, you're going to have to quit this. It's going to kill you. You're spending all weekend working on these guys' business, but it's all you're doing, and you're working in your other job, and it's just it's wearing you out. It's not healthy. Um, and so, you know, uh, one thing leads to another. Uh, I'm getting burned out, as I think any teacher could relate to. You know, I... I got into teaching thinking, well, it's going to be great. I'll get my summers off. I'll teach one class, two right. classes. You know, it's going to be easy. Now, I'm in there, you know, for 10 hours a week, you know, and, and then all this work on the outside because I can't do it there. There's no tools there. Uh, so, yeah, I was pretty much ready to go, and I could see where it was coming. I needed at least a break. Uh, then I got there, and, I mean, they just, after they cleaned house, um, they wouldn't let me in one morning. That was it. It was over. I got to go. I was already in class, but they came and got me like they would get a troublemaker and escorted me right out the gate and said, you can't be here. You don't have the credentials to be here. And I said, I've been here three years. What are you talking about? Well, these guys never got you the credentials you needed. You can't be in a prison. That's the new rule. So you're out. And I thought, well, it's a graceful way out. I was looking for a graceful way out. But, you know, at the same time, we still had three weeks to go in that class and I wasn't going to just abandon these guys. They'd put in the time and effort. And at the end of the class, you get a certificate. Well, if they don't finish it, they don't get the certificate. And these guys were into the certificates. That meant a lot to some of them. So I contacted the college, and the lady who hired me, she had no idea what had gone down. And I told her, you know, I, they won't let me back in. I, I think I'm done. Well, let me get hold of this guy, and I'll clear this up. I said, well, he's gone. Oh, he's gone? I said, yeah, he's gone. Well, let me get hold of him. Well, he's gone, too. I said, they've just cleaned house in that prison. I, I don't know exactly why, but... You know, they're up to something. Now we got new people and they're saying I can't come in. 
And it turned out that the process to get me what I needed to get back was going to take months. So I was like, you know what? I think this is going to be it for me. Yeah. Good time. Yeah, Good this time. is it. Well, you got a lot of other stuff going on other than your book. I mean, you do a good job of really closing your book. There's, you know, you give updates on where some of your people are there. You know, you've got some authors, entrepreneurs, yeah. um, you know, simple business people probably, right? Go yeah. start a grass, go cut grass. Right. Um, we have a neighbor who, you know, his kid kids are scared to work these days. Right. It's different. Um, I, you know, as soon as I was able to get $5 an hour, I'm dating myself just a little bit, but I'm sure you remember. I mean, your first job was with the Chicago Tribune or delivering papers, right? How much yep. were you making then? It wasn't much. I was in eighth grade. I mean, they gave you, uh, might have been, I mean, if you, it was just a cash thing at the end of the week, but if you did the math, I'm sure it was $2 an hour or something like that. But it wasn't hard work. I mean, you rode around and delivered paper. The thing was you had to do it every day. I mean, there was no days off. Um, but I think that when I got my first minimum wage job, I want to say it was $2 and 35 cents an hour. Yeah. Well, was, one of the funny things I, I read in your questionnaire was you said you worked at like a seafood restaurant. Right. And my, the funniest part was what? Oh, seeing how big you can make a hush puppy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so we had perks. I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, how big can we possibly make yeah. a hush puppy? Yeah. And yeah, so I'm sure by now someone has probably outdone that hush puppy. Probably. We got up to like basketball size at, at times and there was a brick wall we go throw them at. Yeah. And the inside never got cooked. So it was really cool to watch this thing hit and just splatter. Yeah. But yeah, it was, it was the thing you do when you're bored cooking fish all day. Yeah. I mean, I, you told a really good story also about how you're, your grandfather got over here, right? right? So they were, and I feel like this is a blurb that I was supposed to read somewhere in my history lessons, but I didn't about what happened with the potato famine in Ireland. Right. So they move over here. Uh, he gets a job in Boston, right? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So he sure. gets a job in Boston, working the railroad. They build the railroad from Boston to Aurora, lay the railroad track. And then what happened? I mean, that's as far as they're going to go. You know, they basically Boston to Chicago and then a little offshoot to rural Illinois. Well, boys, we're done. This is it. We've done everything the railroad wants us to do. And, you know, here's a guy who's a candy dancer. He's, he's driving, you know, spikes in the ground. That all was, day the, long. That was the word, candy yeah, dancer. Yeah. I was like, yes. Yeah. And I was, I was telling my wife, I was like, I remember something, you know, you remember parts about elementary school and social studies. And I was like, I remember what a candy dancer was, and I just had to look at look it up. I was like, "Please don't be on a bad website. Please don't be on a bad website." <laughs> it doesn't sound good. <laughs> it does doesn't it? sound good. But I mean, you, the, I'm, the reason I, I want to bring that full circle, you learned a lot from your dad. You probably learned it from your grandfather. Um, you know, you you run a very successful business now. You know, with some family members um, and with um, people who actually, you know, were, were in the prison. So tell us a little bit about what you do and how that, how you started that business and kind of built that from ground up. Okay, perfect. Well, when I went to work for my dad, um, now my dad's a great salesman. I mean, he's really good. I, I learned so much from his style and he learned it just by doing basically, you know? Um, but when we started, we, um, we weren't good record keepers. Now I had a business degree and I knew that you better have some kind of accounting system in place, obviously. Well, he wasn't, on board with that. And he was taking some liberal expenses that I, I tried to set up an, a manual accounting system. There was no computers. I just had a you know piece of paper and a pen and I tried to count for all the money and we got to the point where it was like, this is a lot of work. 
you know, and I can't make these numbers add up because there's some expenses here that are questionable. Okay, I'm just going to leave it. Here at you that. are coming out of school. You right. know, this is the right way to do it. And, right. and yeah, keep going. He's saying, nope, that's, 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 you just don't worry about that. Okay. Well, what do you want me to do uh, when we do our tax taxes at the end of the year? He said, well, we'll just, we'll just make up the numbers. Okay. Well, what happens if somebody wants to audit what we report as to what is in the bank? Audit. He says, I got a plan. I'm going to take my shoebox. I've been saving my receipts. I take my shoebox and I go dump it all over the guy's desk, the auditor. And that'll, that'll take care of him. Right. We'll, we'll never hear from him again. Of course. So wow. oh, that's the plan. Okay. Well, what am I worried about? So then we are audited. Uh, and of course, we can't account for anything. Nothing matches. Well, we went through a state. It just started out as a little sales tax audit. But once they realized we weren't keeping track of anything, it got pretty serious. And they got to the point where they're like, we're going to contact the IRS. You reported X dollars income. Well, you've got more than that in the bank for the year. You've it doesn't got, add up. You've got to declare money. Right. So that's a big problem. The IRS is going to come in here very seriously. And I don't know what would have happened. That would have been really bad. But I got in there and I somehow convinced them that, look, we made bad mistakes. We learned from our mistakes. We're going to shut this company down. My dad doesn't want to do this anymore. You'll never see us again. Please don't bring the IRS in right. because it's going to get really rough. I had that fear. So when I started my small business, my number one fear was the IRS. Right. Pay them first, put them on auto draft 100%. because there's two things you can't hide from and it's death and the IRS. That's exactly right. And um, they're going to get you. Yep. I mean, it might not be today. It might not be tomorrow because today's riches, you might not have tomorrow, but I think they have seven years, right? Or something like that to come after you. Oh, like, yeah. um, and they will. They can take everything you've got. They can take your social security. They, there's no limit. They have complete power. So it's not worth making up stuff. It's just not. Pay them their due. Pay them 35% or whatever you make and, and go about your business. And if it you feel like you're paying too much, we'll just figure a way to make more money. I mean, that's the answer. Not don't. It's too big of a downside. Yeah, it's, it's not worth it. So they, they shut us down and we shut ourselves down, basically. And with their mercy, we decided, well, what we'll do is we'll start another company. Right. And my dad was like, this is going to be your company. I don't want to do this anymore. Right. And I had learned so much from that lesson. I was like, well, first thing we're doing is getting QuickBooks. And we're going to account for every dime, nickel, and quarter that comes into this company. And I've done it that way since uh, because the downside's too great. So I got a great kick. We were, you took all his established accounts, switched them right into mine. You know, I'm 27 years old, and I got a company that's doing a million dollars a year. I mean, that's right. pretty that's incredible. Great. Yeah. Right. I mean, what a gift. Um, and it's 100% mine. Right. So we, you know, we started – from the dining room table and I got us into a little warehouse space and then a little bigger warehouse space and a little bigger warehouse space. And we were doing great. And then everything just went to pieces, hundred percent South. Um, we had manufacturing problems. They got into the Y2K scare and switched all their systems. They couldn't ship anything. My customers were leaving. Uh, Y2K stopped everything. Yep. Uh, then, you know, September 11th came along, shut down the whole industry for a good two or three months. And here I bought us, put us into this big building, which is everything my dad told me not to do. You know, keep the overhead low because you can weather any storm. Well, here came the storm and I'm paying rent of $3,850 a month for, I signed a five-year lease. Wow. And we weren't making that, you know, and I got to the point where I wanted to sell the company. And you were thinking about it, right? Oh, yeah. I had a guy yeah, in place. You had offers. And, yes, and, sir. And then that little voice in the back of your head said, John, don't do that. You're an entrepreneur. Where's your spirit? And then what happened? It was even better than that. Um, I had made my buddy from eighth grade who ran my installation. <coughs> great, great friend. And um, he's took the hard part of the business, the installation part, and made it work. And for years forward. So he was doing such a good job. 
I wanted to make him part owner. So I gave him 20% of the company. And he said, don't do that. I don't want it. I said, no, I want you to have it. I want to show you that I'm invested in you because you've invested in me and I want to be partners with you. Okay, I'll take it. And uh, so as I decided to sell it, things were so grim. I told him, I said, look, the only way I can pay this rent, if I don't satisfy this rent obligation, they can take my house. I mean, that's where we are now. I don't have the money. I don't think it's going to come in. I don't want to lose my house. I can sell this for a little bit of money right now. We can be done. And he said, well, I'm not quitting. And I said, what are you talking about? This is my buddy from eighth grade. You know, we've been down a lot of roads together. And I said, what are you talking about? We're going to fail. I mean, do you want to just stay here and fail? He said, you do what you want. I'll give you my shares of stock for free, but I'm not quitting. He said, why don't you let me run the office and you go out and get some customers, get some new customers. Let's just build it back up. What are you talking about? What are you scared of? Yeah. And I said, okay, look, if you want to go down in flames and you want this thing to end tragically, fine. Let's just do that. But you know, the day that I said, okay, I'm going to go one more round, and this will be the last round for sure, but maybe I'm going to give it my best shot. Everything changed. Everything turned around. All of a sudden, all these bad outside influences that I couldn't control went away, and we got our customers back, and things started going well, and within a year or two, we were at a level way, way above what we had been at years before, and that was my big life lesson because that would have been almost like getting caught early when I would have gone to prison. It would have been even worse or just as bad maybe had I sold that company and, and missed out on all this good stuff. You yeah. know? But well, what, what you learn from that is it's important to have a good partner in business and somebody who knows you well enough and can encourage you when you need it. Uh, and if you quit what you really want to do, I mean, there's, there's just no reason to do that. And the people that succeed are the people, like I said earlier, who don't quit. Right. That's my big takeaway of the book. Is And I've had some reviewers who said, you know, the thing about this book is you realize – this guy just never quits. He just keeps going for whatever he wants to do, be it teach or whatever. And it's not that I'm this great determined person, but I had some good guidance. Um, and if you look at success stories, they almost always come down to that crossroads and don't quit. And then things seem to turn around. It's almost like you're tested to right. your very bottom and just see if you can come out of there and say, nope, I'm still going, you know. Well, you're still getting a little bit of that. Um, you're still teaching a little bit. Uh, you know, so talk a little bit about what you're doing with Tavares Jackson right now. So Jackson, that's, that's Tavares James. Yeah. Tavares James. Yep. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about what you're doing with them. Okay. So the, the guy I hired to run my company, who's done an amazing job that I met in prison, knew Tavares from prison and he came and started working for me. And one day we're talking and he knew me. I didn't know him. I hadn't met him at the prison, but there was a lot of guys I didn't meet. It wouldn't be that unusual, but he said, yeah, but yeah, yeah. You're Mr. Moose. I remember you guys knew you taught there. And he said, that's what I want to do. I want to teach. He said, I've, you know, did my time. I've learned my lesson. And I realized that these people coming out don't have the resources they need. I said, man, you're, you're singing my song, but I don't know how to get there. And I said, well, look, man, I got a hundred hours of material that I created from scratch. We combined forces here. We can really do something together. Um, but it's his company. I set it up all in his name, hundred percent his, and I just volunteer. I try to help him. We're, we're just getting it off the ground now, but we do have classes monthly uh for people in that similar situation and it's so much nicer to teach on the outside where i can get to know you a little better and i can bring in resources i can give you things i can you know i got powerpoint and i got slides and i got movies and so we're trying to hit that same demographic um with the same message that you can start your own business and here's how you need to handle money and if, if you can give people those two keys uh they can go a long way so it's is that it's kind a, of feeling the itch you have to go back to teach, or do you think there is a next step after this that, or is this is this kind of? Is, 
This is it, probably. That's a great question. I, I don't know where it goes from here. I mean, I love the teaching part. I'm not doing it as often now. I'm just doing it once a month. Um, right now, I'm busy trying to promote the book um, because that's where it's at right now. book is like it's like a song. If When it comes out, it's got to start moving up the chart pretty quick or it's going to die. So right now, I'm putting all my resources. I just released it uh, April 4th. Yeah, so okay. we're only a couple weeks in, and so that's my motivation now. Where it goes from here, I don't know. But if I had the opportunity to build a program in, for people inside a prison, I would I would jump at the chance. Right. Yeah. So that's awesome. So, and before I get off topic about the book, um, and you would do a better job of explaining it, tell people where else they can get the book. Books available just about anywhere you can buy a book: uh, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Goodreads. Uh, Google it. It'll come up in a number of different places. I, I recorded an audio book in my closet at home. So if you want to, like Stephen said, it's much easier to listen uh, than it is to read. I got that. You know, we've got the Kindle book. Um, but it, anybody who's listening to this and wants a copy of the book, if you can contact Stephen through his site, I'll be more than happy to send you an autographed copy at no cost. Great. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, I, I appreciate you coming around today. I kind of want to close this out, but I want to give you you know, you think a lot of people in your, in your book, um, the book is mainly about the, the, the portion about teaching financial literacy and entrepreneurship, but it's also a memoir, right? Right. But your, your story's not done, man. I'm telling you, uh, I, I read a lot of good things in this book. I knew you before I read this book. I didn't know that your heart and your soul was into this. And when I read it and when I listen to it, I feel the passion is still burning. Um, so you said that, you know, you, you weren't ever planning on writing a book, but you know, maybe there's an, another story. Maybe there's another song of John McLaughlin coming up. I know you, you also have written a children's book, right? Right. My wife and I did, uh, that was our COVID project. Yes. Right. It's a book about a horse that learns how to ride a bike. Wow. What's so, that called? Uh, bike for Buster. Is that for sale? Oh, absolutely. Where do uh, you get that one at? Same place. Completely different story, but you could get that at Amazon or Barnes and Noble, anywhere books are sold. So anybody can write a book. And I would encourage you to do so because it's not so much the end result, it's the journey. And if you never sell a book, if it never sees the light of day, trust me, it's worth it. Um, when I first turned in my very first copy to it, you get a beta reader and they just read through your ramblings and try to put some order and come back with criticism. Uh, one of her early criticisms was, you know, you can't just bring your wife in. We need to know. How did you meet her? Why did you marry her? And I said, well, I don't know. What is the W's? Why, why, are the, why what, when, where, what, whatever. Right. Why is it important? Tell me the whole story. Don't right. just jump me off here. And uh, I told her, I never really thought about it. I mean, does it, do you really think about why you married your, your spouse? You know, you don't do a spreadsheet and compare them to other people. You just do it. But it made me go back and that's a good question. I think I'd like, I'd like to do that. <laughs> I'm kidding. No, I think, I think we should all. I, mean, I think it brings fresh life into why we did it in the first place, right? Where did we fall in love? Why did we fall in love? Yeah. And not just with people, but with purpose, right? Yep. What is our purpose? Why do we do what we do when we do? Yep. I nailed that. It was perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's probably trademarked somewhere along the lines. But I like um, I like anyway, so I, John, I appreciate you coming by today. Um, and I encourage everyone to go out and get the book, read the book, uh, do an audible. Um, if they want to, contact you anyway um you know maybe there's someone out there that wants a, a session about financial literacy um what can you tell us about the program you're involved in now um 
you know, we may have some listeners that want to get involved with what Tavares is doing. How can they, con- you know, how can we get them where they need to be? Great question. Thank you. It, it's lifeline to a soul.com. Um, we've got a place there. We've got all the contact information. There's a place you can leave your email address. Uh, if you call Tavares, he will pick up the phone and you'll be blown away. He's an com- amazing motivator and you'll like him right away. I can promise you that. And we're standing by, you know, we're ready to help people any way that we can. Uh, it's, it's very rewarding for both of us. And we've got a good partnership there. All right. Well, um, tell your wife, we said hello. Um, I know you, you, you thanked her a lot in the book, but I, you know, our spouses are our lifeline to our souls. That's very well said. Um, That's and very well you said. talk about how you all met in the book and, and I'm, I'm touched and I'm, I'm very excited for the both of you. Um, this is re- something rewards. I hope she gets to reap the rewards of, you know, having you at home a little bit more and having you on that tandem bicycle a little bit more now <laughs> these days than, you know, back and forth to the prison. So you're exactly right. That's where we're going now. It's a beautiful day out. She said, get home by two and we're going to take the bike out. So Earth Day. Yeah. I told you it was Earth Day. Yep. We didn't even know it. <laughs> <That's right>. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to go out and enjoy it. Sounds good. All right. Well, everyone, I appreciate you joining. Uh, and we'll be back and we'll talk to you next time. Have a good one. Bye bye. Thank you again for listening in today to our conversation with Mr. John McLaughlin. I thoroughly enjoyed sitting down with John to not only discuss his book, but his life story as well. If you're interested in learning more about John's story or to order his book, please visit lifelinetoasoul.com. If you enjoyed listening to our show today and would like to listen in on our future podcasts, we would love your support. You can follow us on Apple Podcasts as well as Spotify. Please search On Broad Time Podcast to find us. Please join us next time when we sit down with former Wake County Sheriff, Mr. Donnie Harrison. Donnie has spent over 50-plus years of law enforcement, as well as 20 years in the political arena. We look forward to talking all things life, law enforcement, and politics. Until then, take care, my friends. Mm-hmm.